Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Are you a chocolate lover? Who isn't, right? Coming up this hour, I talk with the Belgian chocolatier from B. Chocolat in Fairfield about how to really savor chocolate. And food historian Ramin Ganeshram will surprise you with stories about the origin and evolution of chocolate. It wasn't always the delicious thing we know today. And later in the show, producer Tegan Engel sits down with chocolatier Artie Kosla to explain the certifications you see on the labels of store-bought chocolate bars. They'll recommend a few delicious bars that are good for farmers, workers, and the environment. But first, we have wonderful artisan chocolate shops in the state. There are more than a dozen listed on Connecticut's chocolate trail. I visited B. Chocolat in Fairfield, where Benoit Raquet is the master chocolatier and co-founder. His wife, Sylvie Fortin, owns the shop. If you're going to splurge on small-batch artisan chocolate, you want someone like Benoit making it. He's meticulous, and he's doing more than just crafting the bars and filled chocolates. Benoit is designing a tasting experience. He thinks about how every ingredient will hit your tongue. A nut crumb, a salt crystal, or a speck of bee pollen, for example. He's even thought about how a bit of caramel might land on your bottom lip when you take a bite and pull. I talked with Benoit about what makes Belgian chocolate special and how he creates a memorable chocolate-tasting experience. Benoit, thank you so much for having me in your shop and spending time with me to talk about chocolate. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So you were born and raised in Belgium. Did you grow up around chocolate? Were you from a chocolate family? And when did you start to love it? So when you're in Belgium, it's very hard not to be exposed to chocolate because it's everywhere. You go to the supermarket, uh, what you would see your cereal uh, choices in U.S. We have the same with chocolate in Belgium. So you grow in chocolate, <laughs> with chocolate around you everywhere. There is literally a, a saturation of the market with high-quality chocolate, where you have pralines and bars, and then chocolate at a very affordable price point. But it's only later that I developed a, like an attraction for cooking, and uh, then the interesting part was that I was terrible at chocolate in my cooking. No. It, it was almost like something I would very efficiently fail at. Mm -hmm. uh, so I stayed away from chocolate for a while. It's only later that I decided I actually have to master that thing. What was it that pulled you in? It was first for fun. So chocolate making in Belgium is considered like a manual work. And so um, education in Belgium being funded by the government for uh, reinsertion programs, uh, it's a very cheap class. We need a lot of chocolatier in Belgium. But second of all, because for 30 euro per year, you can sign up for a chocolate class. Wait, so are you saying that you were attracted because mastering chocolate there in Belgium is affordable? <laughs> totally. That was one of the reasons I, I, I was pushed by a friend who said, hey, I, I signed up 
I will go to the first class. And of course, uh, we, we fell in love with it. I know you believe that chocolate is something to be savored, like a fine wine. So how do you teach people how to taste chocolate in a way that encourages savoring and like really helps them appreciate the experience of having great chocolate? So we believe strongly in that. I think that's a signature. Every single event we do, I take the time and our staff takes the time to walk the taster through the experience. Because what I'm really passionate about is the fact that you can actually play with the chocolate because your, your mouth is having saliva, heat, and then you can smell. And with chocolate, you can really sequence those things, almost like a firework. When, when people have a piece of chocolate and one second after they say, oh, it's good, I'm stopping them and I say, hold on, hold on. You, you, you only had like the first impression. It's going to take about 10 to 20 seconds, depending on the chocolate, for all those layers to reveal themselves. I think the most obvious one is the salted caramel. So the salted caramel, we're using a grass-fed Vermont butter to do small batch of caramel from scratch. We're not using simple syrup whatsoever. It's about 45 minutes to make sure we're not burning the sugar. And then when the caramel is cooled down, we add the salt. So it's not dissolved in the cream or the butter or the caramel. So what happens then when you eat it is first you have the caramel that comes forward because immediately that's the flavor that is ready to be tasted by your mouth. But as your mouth is heating it up, the chocolate starts to melt. So because it's a Belgian chocolate, which has a lot of cocoa butter compared to an American chocolate, that chocolate will not stick to your palate. It actually will dissolve the caramel. So what happens is you had first the caramel, you realize, wow, this is a good caramel. I can taste it. It's not burned. Beautiful texture. Then Buttery, the, nutty, all, totally, of, all like those all, things that caramel the, does. Yeah, exactly. And, and we spend a lot of time also on how liquid it should be compared to not liquid. Like there was a real, very rigorous sessions about when you bite in half, should you have a little bit of caramel on your bottom lip because it's what you want as an experience. We designed that. It's, everybody it. is a little bit surprised and it's by design. But then that the, the milk chocolate or the dark chocolate melts and dissolves the caramel. So you, you start to have the caramel and the chocolate melt together and they balance each other, they fight each other a little bit. But at that time, your saliva starts to hit the salt because the salt is inside the caramel. It's not sprinkled on top. And then what happens is you start to have the salt later. So first caramel, then chocolate, then salt. And what's very interesting is at that point, you have the flavors already combining, but because the salt takes more time to dissolve, you're hit with the crystals at the end. And people are like, wow, this is exactly what happened. And you see, I took about 20 seconds to describe that. <laughs> yeah. And that's about the time it takes for that experience to happen. And then you're left with the flavors for maybe two, three minutes because those flavors continue to, to be there. They're all natural. So, of course, product taste what they are. And you're still savoring that without necessarily needing a second bite immediately. So, yes, absolutely. That's something that, you know, in a foodie world, we have people who look at us in the eyes and they go like, oh, my God, I've been looking for this for a long time. That's exactly what we're looking for. Yeah. When people use the phrase like party in my mouth, that's yes. what you're talking about. Yes. And it's not a short party. <laughs> no, no. I love that, that one of the things that you're recommending is like people actually take time. That's what savoring is all about. And you and your master chocolatiers have taken the time to make this caramel. And so us as eaters, we also need to take the time to 
let that process of what's happening in our mouths, on our tongues, happen so that we can really appreciate it. And it starts with the design. Every chocolate we when they're we think they're ready, uh, we have panels. So I already can imagine your listeners wanting to know how to be on a panel. Yes. We try to have a panel of about 30 people, 10 people at 4 p.m., 10 at 6, and 10 at 8. So we get feedbacks at different time of the day because your taste change. Your taste buds yes. will change. Yes. I've heard this about sommeliers say this, like yes. you know, your tongue and your, and what your palate you like, is different. What you're looking for, what you're in the mood for. So mm. your feedback are biased because of the time of the day, whether you already ate or not. Each group of 10, we try to have a parody of Americans and foreigners because, you know, some Europeans will say it's perfect and some Americans will say a little bit more sugar. So we, we <laughs> have to... Of course we do. <laughs> we, so we have to make hard choices. Is that chocolate going to please the foreigners? Is it going to please the Americans? And then we make conscious choices that, okay, we cannot only please the Frenches, we, you know, <laughs> or only please the Americans. So we, we make those decisions based on this feedback. And we also try to have a panel that represents men and women. Because there are definitely some chocolate that are pleasing men more than women. And it, it's amazing because sometimes the room is totally divided. It sounds cliche, but that's incredibly revealing to see how true that is. Wow. Well, so, so tell me, what sometimes do men identify in the chocolate that women don't? Or what, what are women telling you they want in a chocolate that men don't seem to notice? Yeah, so we, we almost had a couple fight uh, <laughs> in one of those tasting, which was a cranberry orange. And so the man, when we then read our feedback, the, the man was saying, I regret that we don't get more cranberry. His wife was like, I think there is not enough orange. It's all cranberry, way too much. I have another example, which is vanilla bourbon. So we're using a vanilla from Madagascar, which is called the Bourbon Island. The best extract of vanilla are coming from there. All the men were like, I don't have enough bourbon. And all the women <laughs> were, I don't have enough vanilla. So we did another round of tasting with more vanilla and more bourbon. And then people were like, we missed the chocolate. <laughs> so <laughs> we realized, okay, it's great to have the panels, but we also have to find the right balance between those. My point is... We designed the chocolate so that you have that tasting experience. Is the uniqueness of what you had sufficient that it can carry our brand? Or can you go down to the supermarket and have another salted caramel that is as good? Now, I know it's important to you to work with Belgian chocolate. Calibut is yes. your, your brand. It's a fair trade chocolate. And so why, why do you consider this Calibut, the best chocolate in the world? So first they advertise it on the package. So it <laughs> says Belgian's finest. So that's actually uh, their label because it's what is called a couverture. You have different quality of chocolates. You could use lower quality chocolate for the fillings. But when you want that beautiful, shiny aspect that stays for a while, you need a couverture chocolate. So we use the couverture chocolate for everything. It's important for me because the Calibo is a traditional flavor that is probably the most used by Belgian chocolatier. And it's also the one we had at school. So this is your professional go-to for high-quality chocolate. We get a lot of questions about what makes Belgian chocolate Belgian. So there are different aspects of that. The first one is actually technically the way uh, chocolate is being produced so cacao pods are ground at 32 microns for European chocolate, I think in general in Europe, but definitely with Belgian. 32 micron is the size of your taste buds. And wow, in, I didn't know that. Yeah, and in order to get to that thin powder, it takes time. So you need about 18 hours 
to process that powder to the right granularity. If you want to rush it, either you will heat it up and it will lose a little bit of the flavors or you will not grind it that small. And so most of American chocolate are around 50 micron as a normal size. Hershey's found a way to extract that flavor by adding a little bit of sugar. And so this is why you have a chocolate that is sticking a little bit more to the palate. It's because of the way it's processed. And then you don't need the 18 hours to get to that level of extraction. So why does it taste so good? First of all, because there is a lot more of cocoa butter. So never any palm oil. You, you can legally not call it a chocolate in Belgium if it has palm oil. So that those are the two reasons why people say, wow, this, this is so refined. This is so good. You actually realize you taste it, taste it without knowing why. That's the reason. Yeah. They, when we talk about certain things being like a, a science and an art, the science part of it is that like Belgian chocolate is engineered in a way to be pleasing to it's your correct, taste buds. Correct, and it takes time, so it's at the expense of efficiency. But that's exactly what you know refined products are. The second thing, it's always a good anecdote. Like uh, we talk about Swiss chocolate and Belgian chocolate, and why why are those famous? So Belgian was the inventor of the field chocolate. So Mr. Newhouse was the creator of those. Uh, he was a pharmacist. And uh, initially, you would put medicine inside chocolate because they did not ah. have the capsule gel. So the only way you could have a, a product protected from the bacteria and the environment was actually to put it in chocolate. Oh, I and, thought you were going to say that was the way to make people want to take their medicine. Well, that, that probably helped. I, I think there <laughs> yeah. might have been a combination there. But then he realized that if you put hazelnut paste and other stuff inside, people love it more. So that's how those filled chocolates were invented and why Belgium is known for the filled chocolate, which is mostly what we do. What are some other combinations, flavor combos that you just love that are just so creative? One I'm the most proud of is the rosemary and raspberry. Mm. So it's a little bit unexpected, but I wanted to design a chocolate that pairs well with wines. And when you analyze a wine, you go by, okay, what is the matter? So leather, earth, uh, tobacco. So what is the ma matter? Then what is the leaves that you get? Uh, from the tasting and what is the fruit like okay is it a berry is it red fruit is it plum and so I wanted to do a chocolate that had also that profile when you have the, the, the dark chocolate which is outside the rosemary and the raspberry you have all those three flavor combined but then when you combine with a sip of wine you actually have almost like an expansional matrix of combinations of how the wine reveals itself and then how the chocolate reveals itself so the rosemary raspberry is a really nice chocolate by itself just as a Nice surprise of how well rosemary goes with chocolate. But when you do it as a pairing, it reveals incredible th stuff about the combination. And people really are surprised when you do those combinations because a lot of people have done wine tasting and food tasting and everything. But we're incredibly well equipped to do combinations. Like when you do a pairing and you just take a dark chocolate and a port and the combination tastes like dark chocolate and port, end of the story, it's a little bit falling short. But when you have something really complex as a chocolate, really complex as a wine, and then it reveals, oh, I'm getting now burned plum or um, leather flavor, which you wouldn't get from the chocolate or from the drink, but the combination reveals that, then when we know how the chocolate was made and how the wine was made, it's like, yeah, it's coming from the soil. The soil of the terroir is actually made of clay, and this is what you taste. 
It helps to decompose both products when you combine them. And when they're guided, I think everybody can actually recognize when you can put names on what people taste. And again, that goes back to our obsession about the flavors and how much is packed into that. But the rosemary raspberry is kind of the cornerstone of that experience because of what it's made of. So I want to congratulate you on your third year in your beautiful <laughs> shop. You'd been making chocolates as a cottage business for years before you opened the shop. What did it mean to you to have a dedicated shop in the Fairfield community? Now, a community of chocolate lovers, by the way, I'm sure, based on the line that was out the door the day I came in for a bar for my chocolate fix. So I just wonder, like, what does it mean to you to have this shop? It was an amazing jump into the unknown. But we were working with a uh, strategic advisor who is Belgian, lives in the U.S. He's been advising Jack Torres for the expansion in New York. Very uh, famous chocolatier. Absolutely. Lots of people know him for his chocolate chip cookies even. Correct. And then we met Xavier. His name is Xavier Lederer. And he, so we needed a bigger production facility than our basement. And then when you're a cottage business, you can only hire one person. And it's very hard to hire a person to work in your basement. It's, <laughs> It's a lot easier to hire a person to work in a beautiful area with windows and everything. <laughs> yeah. So we decided, all right, we're going to have a bigger production site, but it's the pandemic, so we should not expect any customers. And then there was a line outside in the snow. because <laughs> yes, people knew about people. you. And, and maybe six foot distance make the lines longer, but it was <laughs> definitely longer than what we would expect. And so that jump into the unknown was meeting a community. And we believed in it. So all the network of chocolate lovers just basically was immediately turned on. So selling to the community was already important for us before being part and enabling collaboration around Belgian chocolate. But then opening the store really did bring that to a, a higher scale. Although opening a brick and mortar in the middle of the pandemic, any good advisor would tell you that's not a good idea. For us, it was the right moment because everybody can use a little chocolate when, you know, you're stuck at home. Indeed, you're, you are in the joy business. Absolutely. I mean, you personally exude joy, but also you are making a thing that brings a lot of joy to a lot of people and not just in Fairfield. So I'm happy you're here. Thank you so much for taking time out. I mean, I want to acknowledge that this is a very busy time for you. I appreciate so much you sharing your, your expertise with us and also just your, your passion for this work. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having me. It's a, such a pleasure to uh, actually be connected with uh, people who share the same passion. So thank you for creating that community. I'm really, really honored to be part of it. That was master chocolatier Benoit Requet of B Chocolat in Fairfield. Special thanks to Chef Jamie Cooper of Banda Restaurant right next door to B Chocolat. Benoit and I talked there since the chocolate shop was bustling with French music, staff, and customers in the weeks before Valentine's Day. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. It's time for a short break. When we get back, I talk with a food historian about the origins and history of chocolate. Every sip of hot chocolate is actually a taste of this bitter history of the Atlantic trade. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. This hour, we're exploring chocolate. My next guest is Ramin Ganeshram. She's the executive director of the Westport Museum for History and Culture. She's also a food historian, a professionally trained chef, a journalist, and an author. I visited Ramin at the museum back in December to see an exhibit running at the time called Bittersweet, Chocolate in the American Colonies. The exhibit focused on how chocolate has been part of American culture since the 1600s and how that came to be. Now, the museum structure goes back to the 1790s, so you might hear a creaky floor in the exhibit room. We started there and then moved to a quiet spot in the museum to talk more about the evolution and history of chocolate. What we're looking at first here is actually kind of a life-size replica of a cacao tree, right? And so uh, what you see on the wall here is an image of a tree that is two-dimensional, but then you have some three-dimensional replicas of cocoa pods or cacao pods, which is actually where the beans or the seeds that chocolate comes from are inside of. What this is meant to demonstrate is the fact that cacao cocoa, chocolate, comes originally from Central America and parts of the Caribbean basin and originally was processed by the Aztecs. And it was very much a part of religious culture. It was the wealthy and the important individuals in the Aztec community who drank chocolate, but it wasn't the drink that you think of now as hot cocoa. And it was not certainly chocolate candy or chocolate bars. Yeah, I think people will be surprised to learn that There was a time in history when chocolate was not considered delicious at all. At all. In fact, and it was it was drunk very specifically as a stimulant, kind of the way some people drink coffee Uh, for the caffeine. So what the Aztecs did was they ground processed cocoa beans. And that process is a process of drying the beans, fermenting them, and then grinding them and removing the shells and grinding them. So you have a paste, which Mm -hmm. later becomes chocolate the way we use it now. But at the time, they used the paste as it was. They added spices, chili peppers. Other things later came into it. They drank it with water. It was not hot. It was cold and this kind of thick, gritty, very bitter and very spicy drink was drunk by the Aztecs. And so where do we go from here? From the very beginnings of From the very beginnings, right? So, So essentially what happened was European colonizers, the Spanish, came to Central America and they saw this drink and they saw the effects of the drink, right? The stimulant effects of the drink. 
and they brought it back with them. They thought, okay, well, the aristocracy essentially of the Aztec community is drinking this. It's got to be good. It has to be precious. We're going to bring it back to Spain, where, of course, it was considered to be bitter and not that great. And that's where sugar was added to it and it was heated up. So now we're getting a little closer to what we know as hot chocolate. Mm-hmm. So once the Spaniards decided that chocolate was something that they wanted in their culture and would be delicious for them to drink after they added sugar, they realized that it had to be processed in a mass form to get enough chocolate into Spain and then very quickly through the rest of Europe. The only way for them to do that was through essentially leveraging what they had already set up in terms of sugar plantations, which were run by enslaved labor, right? So enslaved people grew the sugar, processed the sugar into molasses and also sugar and sent it throughout the world. Well, some of that labor force was then redirected into the growing of cacao, right? So what you had was enslaved people growing the trees, enslaved people harvesting the cocoa, enslaved people processing the cocoa, which was a process of opening these pods, taking out these seeds, which have kind of a pulpy covering, which is considered the actual fruit of the cacao. It's sweet and tart. It's actually quite lovely. And then that pulp has to be removed. It was done by fermentation in the sun on long flat beds made of wood that were rolled under roofing. You know, they're called cocoa sheds and they could be wood, they could be later galvanized steel. And once that process of being dried and fermented happened, then there was a process called dancing the cocoa. And dancing the cocoa was a way to polish the beans really specifically for sale, right? Because this was a commodity. You had buyers and merchants looking for the best cocoa beans. Dancing the cocoa is a combination of West African and East Indian cultures and music and dance movements. And it was a way to make this very onerous and difficult work go faster. It's not unlike a lot of work songs you hear in the American South that came out of enslaved communities and then later were the beginnings of jazz or gospel and so on. But from the growing through the preparation of the beans, you're talking about skilled labor. Often people think about the physical labor of particularly the enslaved or the indentured. And to be clear, in this case, we're talking about indentured East Indians and indentured Chinese who start to come to the Caribbean in the mid-19th century after the end of enslavement to grow sugarcane and to grow cacao in a system that was not unlike enslavement, but without the chattel part of it, right? So you were indentured, but that didn't mean your children, your grandchildren, odd infinitum were, right? Mm -hmm. Which is different from enslavement, very different. But the conditions were the same. The harsh treatment was the same in other ways. And so this process really required skill, right? Cacao is a very finicky tree, subject to disease. It often doesn't bear if the conditions aren't exactly right. In the fermentation process, it could become moldy. It could become rotten. So these individuals working with cacao for this world market, for colonizers, for their enslavers and those who had indentured them, were skilled artisans. They were agriculturalists. They were um, food scientists. And people, I think, don't realize that about that process. Yeah. It's like a lot of food that we love that has a dark history. Very much so. Very much so. And I would say the chocolate cacao, even more so than many, 
because cacao and chocolate was a complete product of the slave trade, of the triangle trade, right? Yes. For it to be processed and drinkable and what it eventually became, you needed sugar, which is the primary engine of the Caribbean trade. And of course, the cacao was grown in the Caribbean. And then later, the spices that were added to chocolate. So we talked about the Aztecs drinking chocolate as a cold, bitter drink. And then the Spanish adding sugar and heating it up. But then what happened was spices were added in the way that the Aztecs did. But also now spices from the East, nutmeg, cinnamon, things like vanilla that had been brought to the Caribbean again as part of that triangular trade, that Atlantic trade, because they could grow there. And those were added to the drink. So what I always say is that every sip of hot chocolate is actually a taste of this bitter history of the Atlantic trade. Mm. So after the beans are processed and put in sacks, they were sent from the Caribbean to North America as well as to Europe. And those raw cocoa beans were loaded into barrels and sacks for wherever they went in the world, also by enslaved people, right? And then they were, as I said, a commodity. They were traded on commodity markets and they were purchased by millers who would mill these beans into these hard little cakes that were grated for hot chocolate and also you know sweetener was then added at that point chocolate did not have sweetening in itself like a chocolate bar until much later so at this point it was sent to places like philadelphia new york city boston these beans connecticut and yes and to <laughs> connecticut so in a place like connecticut this is how that would have happened the beans would have come to new york or to Boston, and then they would travel then in two ways on what was called the coastwise trade, which is the trade from a major port up and down the coast into smaller ports, right? They would have been sold as whole beans for people to grind at home. So merchants would have sold whole beans or sold to millers to grind, pre-grind, and press into cakes. And those cakes, those discs of chocolate, were then sold by merchants in their stores mm. and, and so are on. those the the precursors of the candy bar or not really because they're still not actually taking a bite out of that chocolate that they're is a wonderful it. question and you're not exactly wrong that is the precursor of the candy bar because what was learned at least was that chocolate could be processed into a shelf stable cake ah right and as long as the environmental conditions were right they could be held without refrigeration without preservative so you're right it is the precursor but at this point sugar has not been added if you wanted the sweet hot chocolate drinking chocolate drink that was all the rage you had to add your own sugar mm. here at the museum we're very fortunate in that we have collections that go into the 17th century and what you see here is an image of an account book of a local merchant from 1792 highlighting purchases of chocolate by different individuals in the town. And what our books show is purchases of, you know, the processed chocolate, those cakes or bars, unsweetened, as well as cocoa beans as yeah, well. Who's buying it? So in this case, this is just a person who is a man. Um, he's a laborer. He's not buying very much. It's certainly a luxury because when you compare what he's spent on the chocolate as to other goods of the day, in this case, we compared it to other things in the book, like building nails, which were quite expensive. He spent easily a day's wages wow. on a little bit of chocolate. Yes. I understand this. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people today would say, that sounds reasonable to me. Yeah. So, For really good chocolate? Yeah. Okay. Yep. 
And so another way that chocolate was consumed, it could be consumed in your house. Again, you really had to have money for that. And depending on who you were, if you had enough money, you might have a cook who knew how to grind chocolate on something called a matate, which is what the Aztecs used to grind the beans into a paste and then add the sugar and add the spices. Or you could go to a coffee house. So coffee houses were really important for the drinking of chocolate. So I often say that, you know, chocolate had its hand in the American Revolution because the men who fomented revolution, who met to discuss seceding, if you will, from England, did so often, not only in taverns, but coffee houses. Coffee houses were the place to have intellectual and serious conversations. Yeah, they still are. And they still are. (laughs) And uh, they serve not just coffee, but what was called bowls of chocolate, drinking chocolate. Other than that, chocolate was often considered a lady's drink. Women of means often started their day with a bowl of hot chocolate, because again, it was expensive. So, you know, just kind of said who you were. And As a result of that, a whole material culture was built around chocolate, right? Beautiful chocolate pots and cups and trays and accoutrements just to serve chocolate because it was so precious. Was it a gift? Yes, people would give chocolate as gifts, absolutely. More often they gave the accoutrements, the pot. You know, you'll often see in wills the gifting of a chocolate pot. Really? Yeah, because it was absolutely very precious. I should also tell you that a tea was made, in fact, some people still do this, from the shells of the cocoa beans, right? So they do have shells. You have to peel them off in order to then grind the cocoa nib. It's called the cocoa nib. And the person who really loved that cocoa shell tea was Martha Washington. So we have accounts of George Washington writing to merchants saying, if you can spare, you know, however many bags or pounds of the cocoa shells, Mrs. Washington is very partial to that tea. Oh, I love knowing that. When do people start cooking with chocolate? If anyone has ever had pure cacao, right, right from the bean, it's gritty. A lot of it sinks to the bottom of the cup. And it's because of the high fat content. So it had to go eventually through a process of somebody figuring out how do you basically reorganize the percentage of fat to pure cocoa mass in order to make it usable in other ways not just as candy, right, Mm -hmm. but in other cooking methodologies. And that took place over more than 100 years in the 18th and 19th centuries. I think a name that people will recognize in terms of chocolate that could be eaten or usable in other ways is Baker's Chocolate, the Baker Chocolate Company. Mm -hmm. That's Uh, who we have to thank for this. That's who we have to thank for the mass production of chocolate for any American to be able to consume. And the Baker's Chocolate Company started in the later 18th century, just outside of Boston, where there were a lot of chocolate millers. And he was milling chocolate cakes for mass consumption. And he milled three grades of chocolate cakes. They weren't bars. They were little round yeah, tablets. we don't mean cakes like cake, baked no, cakes. We not mean cakes that people can work with. Right, like a disc. I think a, a great way for people to understand what this was like is on the market now, there is Mexican drinking chocolate, and it's round. And you're meant to grate that into hot water. So he had these three grades of chocolate discs, the lowest grade, kind of a middle grade that anybody could buy, and then the highest quality. And this company, it was called Baker's, because not because it was for bakers to use, but because the man who started the company was called Dr. Baker. And it was in the 19th century that 
one of the workers at Baker's Chocolate realized we could actually add the sugar right to these tablets. You know, we don't have to keep it separately. And his name was German. And German chocolate comes from that process. It has nothing to do with Germany. It has nothing to do with any kind of particular processing of the chocolate for use by a baker. It is the combination of sugar and chocolate by this gentleman whose surname was Baker. But once that happened, it was kind of fast and furious of people creating innovations to get chocolate to what we know today. So over time, you know, there were these processes, machines were created to make the grinding much finer. Machines were created to separate the cocoa butter, the cocoa fat from what we call the cocoa liquor or the cocoa mass. And then, you know, the grades shift from there. At what point in history or the evolution of chocolate did it become a thing that everyone could enjoy and not just the rich? So it's really the late 19th century, early 20th century, where the mechanization that I described made it possible to process vast amounts of cocoa beans into chocolate. Mechanization and the farming process made it possible to ferment and process vast amounts of cocoa beans. And also the movement of the growing of chocolate from the Caribbean and Central America to Africa, right? Again, around that equatorial band, right? So huge cocoa plantations. So now chocolate is coming down in price because it is not a fully hand artisanship to create Mm. chocolate. And so it's around this time, the early 20th century, late 19th century, that you have the great chocolate companies really beginning to come out. So you have Lindt in Switzerland, and you have M&M Mars, Mars Wrigley, you have Hershey's, all these companies producing mass chocolate in bars and chocolate chips and things like this that anybody could access. And it quickly becomes so integral to American culture that soldiers receive rations of chocolate in wartime. And we definitely saw this in World War II and certainly in World War I as well. To boost morale. Yes, to boost morale. That's right. So Westport Museum for History and Culture is particularly lucky that their historian is also a chef. So (laughs) I wonder, what are the ways today that chocolate shows up on your table? Well, you know, so I have a husband and a daughter who are chocolate fiends, and we have an enormous quantity of chocolate in the house at all times, specifically (laughs) for baking. Can I visit? Anytime, (laughs) anytime. And so for myself particularly, I... I don't love, I shouldn't even say this, I don't love chocolate that much, right? I know, it's sacrilege. So here's how I tend to personally use it. I do a lot of baking, absolutely. I was trained in the French style, as you are when you go to culinary school. So I tend to actually default to that. I tend to make a lot of French desserts, like pot de creme and so on with chocolate. But personally, what I really like to use chocolate for is to thicken sauces, to give a richness to sauces. In very traditional French cooking, it's not even done today anymore, but very traditionally, what was often used was animal blood. Wow. Yes, to thicken particularly dark sauces. And ooh. And ew too, I know. But you know, if you think about it, animal blood is, it has a lot of iron, it's very mineralized, it has a thickness to it, Mm -hmm. and it was often used to enrich sauces. Well, chocolate has all those same properties particularly unsweetened chocolate powder, pure cacao, right? Mm. So I'll often put that in chili or in a beef stew. 
for home cooks, do you have any tips for working with chocolate at home? And some people are actually intimidated by working with chocolate because it yeah. does it burns easy. And once you, you can't bring it back, if you've burned your chocolate, that's it. Yeah, you absolutely can't. I have a few tips. The first is the difference between a chocolate chip and a whole bar of chocolate, right? So if you've ever wondered, why does a chocolate chip hold its shape? Well, it has wax in it. Wax is edible. Beeswax and other plant-based waxes, they're edible. And that's why it holds its shape. So if you want to remold chocolate into another form, don't use chocolate chips mm -hmm. because it doesn't really want to melt completely. It's engineered not to. So if you want to make chocolate chip cookies or something where you want to see those chocolate chips, absolutely, that's what it's for. Yeah, if you're uh, going for the iconic <laughs> chocolate exactly, chip cookie, yeah, exactly. use the chips. Which I tend not to. I use a higher um, grade of chocolate. I really like Calabo and Valrona, or kind of the chef's chocolates. I was going to ask you. Yeah, those are my two favorites. And I just shave the chocolate I want for chocolate chip cookies, and it's more melty and more uniform. So don't try to remake candy or things like barks or what have you or frostings from chocolate chips. You're going to have a hard time. The second tip I would have for people, and I think, again, to your point, people are afraid to do this, but if you do it carefully, you'll be okay, is you can melt chocolate in the microwave. And the, you can. You can. And you, be and brave, be people. Be brave. <laughs> Just do it at 10-second increments. You know, if you're putting big chunks of chocolate, you're going to have a chance of burning it. If you're shaving it or grating it and then doing 10-second increments, taking it out, mixing it, 10-second increments, you'll be fine. You just have to keep an eye on it. Ramin, thank you so much for letting us tour the exhibit and hosting us at the museum. I loved talking with you about chocolate and learning from you. Thanks so much, Robin. It was a pleasure to have you here. That was Ramin Ganeshram of the Westport Museum for History and Culture. Ramin is a food historian, journalist, and an author. Her latest book is The General's Cook, a novel which tells the story of Hercules Posey, the chef enslaved by President George Washington. Find out about current exhibits and events on the museum's website. It's a truly special place with a mission around truth-telling and inclusivity. I'll link to it on our show page. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. After a short break, producer Tegan Engel and chocolatier R.T. Kosla explain terms like fair trade and share their picks for store-bought chocolate bars you can feel good about buying. This one is made in Belgium, so you're getting an amazing product at a very fair price for a very, very, very good taste. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Now, we know that chocolate has a dark history. This food that so many of us love so much has some complex problems impacting people and the planet today. But fear not, chocolate lovers. There are many excellent bars available locally all over that you can feel good about buying. Next, producer Tegan Engel is joined by Westport chocolatier Arti Kosla of La Rouge Chocolates by Arti. In a minute, we're going to be tasting lots of chocolate bars we're recommending and help you decode some of the information on their labels. But before we jump in, Arti, can you tell us a little bit about your award-winning chocolate shop? 
Chocolate for me is a passion and Le Rouge is a passion project. I started on this journey about a decade ago because I love chocolate, go hunting for it <laughs> when we travel. I've tried to capture over the last decade flavors from Paris to Punjab and bring them to our community by capturing them in chocolate. Wonderful. Can you tell us some of your favorite flavors? Some of the favorites, favorites is a saffron pistachio truffle, mm. which pays homage to my Indian heritage. Growing up, we would have ice cream called kulfi, some of you might know. And I've tried to interpret that as a truffle. And our latest collection is actually a tipsy caramel collection. Well, I think that you are the perfect person to talk with me about chocolate today because you for sure know the ins and outs of the chocolate industry, and you are a serious chocolate lover. Guilty as charged. So you love chocolate. I love chocolate. So many people love chocolate. The challenge that I find is that when I started learning about the chocolate industry, I realized that there was so much exploitation that was happening to people, to workers, all through the supply chain, as well as to the earth. So many farmers in West Africa and in South America were living in severe poverty. And while the chocolate industry is, I think, a multi-billion dollar industry, most of the farmers are making maybe a dollar a day really living in, in severe poverty and in some cases are being enslaved or forced labor for both adults and children. Also, some forests are being clear cut to make way for cocoa trees. So we thought we would help make it a little easier for folks when they go into the grocery store or into a pharmacy to figure out which chocolates you can feel good about buying that's good for farmers, for workers, and good for the environment. There's many amazing artisanal shops like yours around, but sometimes people need things at a lower price point or that's just easier to pick up if they don't happen to live near a specialty shop. So all the bars today that we're going to talk about can be found in grocery stores and pharmacies around the state, and most of them are around 3 to $6 a bar. And you might be familiar with an organic label that you've seen in the grocery store. On chocolate, there also are fair trade and fair for life symbols. So we're going to go through a bunch of these symbols and help you understand what they mean so that you can make great chocolate buying decisions. Artie, what is fair trade? If you see that symbol on a bar of chocolate, it basically tells you that the companies that are making this chocolate, the bean to bar, when they grow the cocoa, when they process the cocoa beans, they are actually doing it in an ethical way. And they are making concerted effort to get the farmers and the people who are planting them, harvesting them, be paid a fair wage. Also, create environments where they can actually live a better life. They also are investing back into these communities. So the big companies realize that the profits that they were making from chocolate, which is loved by everyone around mm -hmm. the world, is something that they need to invest back into the people who are putting in the hard work. It might look slightly more expensive than what is not labeled as fair trade. The money is going back into improving these communities. And something I love about it is that it's a minimum price. So even if the market goes up and down, there's a minimum price. So people, the farmers always get a guaranteed price, even if the market goes down. Absolutely. So yeah. the idea is that they're investing back into this industry. So the people who work in it and the communities that spend their lives providing us with this wonderful, wonderful product 
are taken care of. They also make sure that farmers are using sustainable growing practices so that it's also good for the environment. Absolutely. It goes hand in hand with the next two that we'll be talking about. So the next symbol that you can find on chocolate bars is called Fair for Life. And this is pretty similar to fair trade, except that it also includes workers all along the supply chain, not just the farmers. It includes the workers that are in companies in America, in Europe, in any place along the whole production from growing the cocoa to selling the chocolate bar. The fair for life symbol just goes one step above and is just a little bit more strict than the fair trade symbol. There's another symbol we can see, which is organic. The word organic is something that all of us are familiar with. We look at organic berries and we're looking for it for meat. Why not for chocolate? In a nutshell, it means that this is how the cocoa beans are grown. So no chemicals, fertilizers or pesticides are used. No antibiotics are given to the animals. There are no GMOs. Everything goes towards sustainability. The reason that we're looking at these symbols is it's not just about companies sort of grading their own homework. How good did we do? This is a third party, like an external organization that is certifying, do people actually do what they say they're doing? So each of us picked some chocolates that we like that are either fair trade, fair for life, and or organic. And I thought I would pass it over to you, Arti, to do your first pick of a chocolate. Well, my first pick is a chocolate that is made in Switzerland. It's called Alter Echo, not Alter Ego. This is a fair for life and organic chocolate. They go one step further by using compostable packaging and recyclable packaging. They also work with the local communities to support this agricultural processing. And the best part is they are available at our local grocery stores at a price point that doesn't shock us. I love this flavor, which is a brown butter dark chocolate. This is one of my favorites. All right, let's try it. So it's a, a thin bar, nice and dark. It has a good snap. Mmm. What do you think? You're the chocolatier. <laughs> it is good. The creaminess, the way it's just melting in our mouth. Mm -hmm. Brown butter, of course, is, you know, has a big aha moment right now bit of a nuttiness, a little bit of a saltiness, and it's picking up all the right notes in this dark chocolate. Absolutely. This one definitely hits the mark for me. It has a little fruitiness, but it's not like an acidy chocolate. It's delicious. For the percentage that this is, this is amazingly smooth. Yeah, it's a 70% cocoa bar. I'm predicting this is going to be my favorite because I love this chocolate. <laughs> okay, my first pick is a company called Theo which is made in Seattle. Theo is actually certified fair for life, which means that, as I said, that they're looking at the whole supply chain. And I love that, that it's not only about the farmers, but about all the workers. They actually pay above the fair trade price. So there's this minimum price, but they're paying above it. It's also organic. Something I love about this chocolate also is that it comes, the bar is a little taller and a little thinner. And I really enjoy when the chocolate is thin like that. I don't know, maybe it's because it feels like there's more to buy. <laughs> So this flavor is the cherry almond. Do you like fruit in your chocolate? I do. I love the cherry in particular because it has that tartness that I think complements the chocolate wonderfully. Yes, the cherry does, is the crowning glory in this one. Of this one, yeah. I love the taste of the chocolate too. It's to me is like a 
kind of a rich coffee taste. These bars come in a lot of different flavors, which I think is really fun. There's a coffee toffee, a hazelnut crisp. You have a favorite of this one too, right? The yeah, it's it's the dark milk. It's I think it's about thirty four percent cacao, but it just has a richness to it which I haven't found in too many dark milks. Yeah, I love the the Theo Fair Trade and Fair for Life chocolate. Okay, Archie, what's your second pick? It is Tony's. This one is made in Belgium. So you're getting an amazing product at a very fair price for a very, very, very good taste. That's my <laughs> two bits in that. Um, they are fair trade certified and are on the path to fair for life by having traceable cocoa bean supply chain. Actually, they are one of the companies which is trying to work within the big industry because Belgium and Switzerland, as we know, are one of the largest producers of good quality chocolate. But there are practices that need to change that we talked about before, and they are trying to change that from the inside. They have some really good flavors that I love. We are going to try their caramel sea salt, which I thought is amazing. Wonderful. And people might have seen these bars around because they're those really, it's a very chunky bar comes in really bright packaging with with a fun font on it. So they're like turquoise or bright orange. So you might have seen it around already. This one is a milk chocolate, and it's a milk chocolate salted caramel. Divine is all I can say. (laughs) And you're partial to dark chocolate, but you still enjoy this milk chocolate. I'm partial to dark chocolate, but I am very partial to milk from Switzerland and Belgium. What do you love about the milk from Switzerland and Belgium? Have you been to Switzerland? I have not. When you land at the airport, you hear the cowbells. So it's the air, it's the soil, it's the water that creates this amazing creaminess that we can taste in this chocolate. Mm. Yeah, I think they take good care of their cows. So we taste that in the milk and the chocolate. <laughs> yes, we do. I like. I expected that to be a little too sweet because I don't usually love caramel in chocolate when it's too sweet, but I actually really enjoyed that a lot. My second pick is Divine Chocolate Company. And something that I love about Divine, in addition to that it is a fair trade certified chocolate, this is a chocolate that is actually primarily owned by the Ghanaian farmers who founded the company. They are produced in Germany, but the company is 45% owned by the Ghanaian farmers. They started with about 2,000 farmers, and they now have over 85,000 farmers. 35% of them are women. I love that because most of the cocoa we have is grown in Africa or South America, but most of the companies are owned by Americans or Europeans. And so I really love with this company in particular that the Ghanaian farmers are owning this company. They own it together with three different NGOs, non-governmental groups. But they have two seats on the board, they get profit sharing, they get to be involved in all the decision making, and I think that's just a wonderful thing. Not only they're doing all this wonderful stuff with women empowerment and farmer empowerment, they also are shifting how we look at making it better for the communities that are actually part of this process. They're shifting it from benevolence to empowerment is a huge, huge positive for me. Yes, 100%. They're shifting from a charity model into Mm -hmm. empowerment. I love it. 
For this one, I thought we would do just a plain dark chocolate. So this is an 85% cocoa, exquisitely smooth dark chocolate from Divine. All right. Totally lives up to what they're talking about. Mm. The smoothness is absolutely divine, <laughs> considering it's a 85% cacao. Yeah, most I agree. Of, There's no... Most of the bars end up being grainy at this point in time, but they're keeping a balance without it being too acidic or too bitter. Yeah, it's delicious. It's a really nice texture and a really delicious flavor. Again, not too acidy and has that kind of rich cocoa flavor. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wonderful. This company also has a lot of fun flavors. Uh, we also have with us a dark orange with ginger and a more milk chocolate with a hazelnut truffle in the middle. So that might be fun for people who want some other flavors in their chocolate. Okay. So for a recap, we're looking for fair trade symbols, fair for life symbols. They're sometimes on the front, sometimes on the back. And organic, which is a plus for the environment if it's also organic. People can also check out slavefreechocolate.org for additional info. And you had a suggestion of another place to look for more chocolate info. Yes. It not only covers the bars that we're talking about, it covers the chocolate industry. It's called the Fine Chocolate Industry Association, FICA. We are actually at present in the process of putting together a glossary for people to understand what all these symbols mean. Yeah, I should mention there are some other symbols that are on a lot of the bars that people will find in the grocery store or in pharmacies. Rainforest Alliance, Certified Sustainable Sourced, and Direct Trade are on a lot of those bars. While those symbols are certainly a step better than what's done in the uncertified bars, most of those are not really going as far on supporting workers' rights as fair trade and fair for life. So if you can find fair trade and fair for life, those are definitely the way to go. Arti, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm going to say I always am game for sharing my passion for chocolate. And I love tasting chocolate with you. <laughs> that was producer Tegan Engel with Westport chocolatier Arti Kosla. When you visit LaRouge Chocolates by Arti, you'll find her placing individual nuts and other delicious embellishments on her chocolates by hand, one by one. That's what truly artisanal chocolate makers do. Go to our show page to see images of Benoit Raquet and his chocolates at B. Chocolate, Ramin Ganeshram at the Westport Museum for History and Culture, Artie Kosla, and every chocolate bar that Tegan and Artie tasted. I'll list them all on our show page too, ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Seasoned is produced by me and Meg Dalton, Tegan Engel, Stephanie Stender, Catrice Claudio, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. On the next episode of Seasoned, we're talking with some of your favorite Instagram and TikTok stars in the food space, Kat Ashmore from Cat Can Cook and David Milton, the creator behind The Damn Gram and The Damn Talk. Thanks for listening, everybody. 